Man, let's just give the Lord some praise this morning. Amen. If you're part of the junior high or high school, you guys are free to take on off to your own programming out in the AB auditorium. So uh, thanks for being here for the worship time. In the meantime, we as the adults, we're going to be diving in to uh, the last portion of this book of Habakkuk. And uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 3 today and really kind of pressing through in this conversation. And it kind of brought up some odd memories for me. I can remember growing up, one of the worst things that I could think of is when my mom would simply tell me those three words, go see dad. Uh, right? It's like, maybe it's four, go see your dad, something like that. But the reality was, it always kind of caught me for a second, because my, my dad, I don't know, if he, my dad might, may have been like your dad, but I would typically, I can imagine myself, I'd walk down the stairs, come into our family room. My dad, it would be a typical Saturday morning when I'd get in trouble like this. My dad would be sitting there on the couch, or in his chair that he had, and um, he, he'd just be like, watching golf, and that's it, just watching golf, and I knew I was in trouble, and so approaching him, I could, I noticed everything about him, how his breath came in and out in a very menacing manner, and you watch the grip he had on the controller, imagining him shattering it in a single second, looking at his eyebrows, which are even worse than mine, brooding and angry, and I'm just going, you don't mess with dad, it's just freaking me out. Anybody else have a dad where you just didn't mess with him? He's just like a storm waiting to just break forth upon, not that he was abusive, not that he yelled or screamed, he just had that presence, that menacing presence. Well, lo and behold, that menacing presence one day would come out in a different manner. I was in a car with my dad. We were out looking for my sister. Um, then she was, it was late in the night, and my dad was trying to find out where she'd gone. And so I'm in the car with him, and we pull up into this parking lot, kind of random area. And as we pull up, my dad, like, turns it on, just like we're, this kid standing by my window. And my dad's like, hey, do you know, you know, do you know her? Speaking about my sister, she knew where she is, and he's like, "No, man, I'm sorry, I wouldn't tell you if I did." And he's just like, suddenly, Principal Harris showed up. My dad was the principal of Norco High. So you ever been to the principal's office? That was my life. It's no wonder I never went to the principal's office. I lived in one. It was like, you don't go there, man. That brooding suddenly turned on. He's like. Bing. What do you mean? You don't talk to me. And I just like starts drilling this kid. And I'm going like, thank God that's going past me out the window. You know, and it's, and he's just drilling on this guy. I'm pushing on him. And it was, and you know, there was a change in me where otherwise I would usually be really nervous because that's how my dad would get on me. He was like, oh, Principal Harris, I'm so sorry. Even though you're my dad, it's freaking me out. And at the same time, now he's like on this kid about where my sister is. And I'm sitting back there going, like, yeah, you get him, dad. Yeah, get him. You got him. You mess with my dad. He's a principal. <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. What is that about that sudden switch? The same exact power that's meant to, that, that is used to discipline us suddenly switches to defend you. And you're like, yeah, I love it, I love it. Otherwise, you're like, I hate it, I hate it. I'm scared of it. And I think this is a great analogy of a picture that we're going to wrestle with in this final chapter in the book of Habakkuk. In which you're struggling over this, yeah, yeah, God, go. No, no, God, don't. And it's right here as Habakkuk kind of 
opens his heart up and begins to reveal how we should live in the midst of all of the things that he's been going through. So grab your Bible, if you will. Open up to Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19. And in, in, in verses 1 through 19, Habakkuk is, uh, actually, if you, if you need to, grab your Bible. If you don't have one, there are Bibles in the seats. So you can find on page 786 and join us there. Otherwise, um, you've either got your tablet or device. You can open it up there. Um, Habakkuk is smack dab in the middle of what's called the Minor Prophets. So if you're in the New Testament, go left. If you're in the Old, Old Testament, you, you recognize the names like Psalms or Jeremiah or something like that. Go right until the names start not making a whole lot of sense, and, and, you'll, and you'll land in Habakkuk eventually. So otherwise, we're in chapter 3 there. And Habakkuk has begun this at the beginning of the series. And his basic question to God was, God, this, this, Israel's really messed up. It's pretty evil. Do you even care? I don't see you doing anything. And, and God says, I do care. I love Israel so much. I'm willing to judge the evil. I'm going to bring discipline on, and I'm going to use the Babylonians. At which point Habakkuk goes, you're going to use who? You're going to use the bad guys to, to, to conquer the good guys, to give the spanking to the good guys? I don't understand why this is working. And God says, calm down for a second. They're going to get their day. They're going to have their comeuppance. Judgment will happen on them. Don't worry about that. Right now, what you need to do is you need to live by faith. You need to trust that my glory is going to cover the world. You need to trust that I'm the only God who exists that's going to judge. I am just calm down. And so that's really kind of the solution. And now Habakkuk, in his thinking and processing about these things, is working through the conversation of how do I deal with this? How do I deal with the sudden judgment that's going to come on my nation? The sudden discipline that we're going to face? And so he starts off with this. He says, verse 3, chapter 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigenoth. That is a funny word. <laughs> Shiganoth. It's a musical term. We're not sure what it means, but it must have been popular to say it's the Shiganoth. It'd be like, this is to the Macarena. You're like, ah, oh, I get this tune, man. I know this one. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, I do fear in the midst of years I revive it. You know, it's like, okay, this, this makes sense. And wrath, remember, mercy. Hey! So... <laughs> Thank you. So he's got this entire thinking of a song that he's writing out here to his people. And it's a song of response to everything that he's learned. And so as we look at this song of response, it starts with a simple prayer. He says, I've got this prayer. And it's a prayer where he sees this wrath coming, but he's going to pray for mercy. And it's a reminder that when we see this, there's a balance between we seeing God's wrath and we praying for mercy. Notice how he begins. He says, oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And what he's getting at is, is a very interesting thing. He starts off and he says, I have heard the report of you and your work. How many of you guys remember your first, your first run through the Old Testament? I mean, some of you guys are actually, you start, you're just new to the Bible and you're starting to work your way through it. And you kind of come to a difficult spot where it's like you're reading like the Constitution. It's like this law and that law and this law. And you're just like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. And keep going. It gets, it's really good. And there's spots where these great stories as you kind of tie it all together and you get through your Old Testament, it's these beautiful pictures of how the God of Israel has redeemed and saved his people over and over and over and over again. In the middle of that, yeah, giving them some discipline, giving a couple spankings here and there to get them back in line, but it's this picture of his deliverance. Then we read the New Testament, we read about Jesus, how he's delivering people, taking away their, uh, their blindness, healing them from their diseases, bring, giving them life when they've died. 
And it's this picture of what's called the kingdom of God. A kingdom that God rules in which he delivers his people. And in that whole picture of what we're looking at here, he is speaking about, God, I remember when you did these things. Revive them. Bring them back. Make them happen again. You ever wondered that? God, why don't you do what you did then, now? I mean, where are the great miracles? Where's the pillar of fire burning up ISIS? You know, that'd be awesome. God just shows up. Boom, you're done. You're like, uh-oh. You know, he wants to split, split open the Mediterranean and let them run in real quick and just close it back up on them or something. Where, where, where are the miracles uh, against communist China who's killing off our brothers and sisters? Where are the powerful acts of deliverance of God and from Boko Haram who, who's running in, stealing women and children and killing them and, and retraining them? You know, where, where's God showing up in the middle of the need of the persecuted church? Did you ever wonder that? What, just like, oh, it aches God. Revive it. Make it happen again. Bring it back. And, and I think it's right to. I think maybe some of us even feel that feeling. You've got some coworkers who are like per- pushing on you. They're doing like the American-sized persecution. They're showing up on your Facebook, trolling dumb statements and moving on, not thinking, not engaging the conversation. Or maybe it's a boss who's, who's using your religion as a, as a wedge point to, to try to make you do something that you don't necessarily want to do. Or perhaps you're just finding yourself frustrated about where our government's gone and, and kind of the stripping of religious freedoms that we're seeing happening around us. But whatever it is, the reality is that this cry, God, would you please come and deliver us? Would you please do what you did? Is what Habakkuk is getting at. I think it's in the hearts of most people who would claim they're Christians. There's this desire for God to act. And yet at the same time, there's a bit of fear involved, isn't there? He says, oh Lord, I fear. Because anytime God brings deliverance or, or, or discipline on the church or whatever, it, there's always a lot of pain and suffering. I mean, we just read the kind of destruction he was going to bring through Babylon. And that was horrible and it's ugly and it's, and it's awful. And, and so when you say, God, I want your deliverance, at the same time we go, oh, I got some fear. No wonder he goes on to say, I want to pray that you remember mercy. In your wrath, remember, be merciful. Get, get them, judge them, but be, be, please be merciful. And I think that's the tension of the heart. On the one side, we're like, yeah, dad, get him, get him. On the other side, you're like, oh, I, have, I remember when that's aimed at me. Don't get him too hard. Remember, Jesus bore our sins on the cross. On one hand, I want my enemies to be destroyed and removed and vengeance. Yeah, on the other hand, I want them to be saved. I want them to be in heaven. I'd rather have them be my brother and my sister in Christ than to be judged at the judgment seat. And so there's a balance between God deliver and God save in the sense of how we understand it, forgive, be merciful. God, be just, but be merciful. Be just, but be merciful. And this is where his prayer begins and how it starts to roll out. And where he starts with is he says, you know what, I'm, uh, what I see in, in his prayer is suddenly a vision that comes to him, a burden that he's carrying, as he said as a prophet earlier, an oracle. Now he's writing a song of this burden. And we see it in verses 3, and we're going to roll all the way down to 15. And it's a, or actually 12. And it's a picture of God's confident, that we can be confident he's going to deliver his people. It's a picture of his deliverance and how it rolls out. In fact, what we're going to see is that what he's doing is he's taking these pictures of old and he's painting them poetically into the text. So almost we're singing the great works of God and what he has done. And as we sing those, it's reminding us of this simple truth that his deliverance is unrivaled and unstoppable. So notice how this begins. He, said, he starts to see a vision. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Selah. 
So he starts with this picture. Teman and, and Paran are both down in the south. And now Israel sits on the Mediterranean Ocean. Down south is towards Egypt. And, and right there in that area between Egypt and modern day, um, modern day Israel is, a, is an area. We're not quite sure where it is, but Mount Sinai lies in that area. Israel had gone out to this mountain. It was the first place God manifested his glory through just amazing works right there. And they stayed there and they were given the law there. And they were made into a people at this mountain as they learned to worship God in fear of his holiness. And what it's saying is that he's gotten up and he's risen up from that mountain and he's starting to march north, coming towards Jerusalem. And in that march, he's showing forth his glory. Verse 4, his brightness was the light, was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. You just imagine lightning storms coming out, flashes in the, in the clouds in a sense. And there he veiled his power. And what he's saying is this is a veiled form of power. It's not the ultimate form of power. It's a veiled form. It reminds me of, light, of how lightning is a great illustration of this. There's a forest home a couple of years ago with my kids. And we were down in the, um, my kids were up at the vent, uh, hanging out at like the zip line and some of the other cool things they've got there. And me and my son Jonathan, we're down in actually the creek trying to catch, um, trying to catch little tadpoles. In the middle of that, a big storm rose up and started rolling down the canyon. And when it thunders in there, it echoes off the side of the canyon. And it thunders. And lightning strikes. And you see it strike. And you're just like, whoa, we got to get out of this, out of the creek. It's going to flash flood. So we got up and we moved our way forward. It started to rain a little bit. And, and Jonathan's like, this is so cool. Fly lightning and thunder. And he's like, he's like six. This is like totally exciting to him as we're walking out. In the meantime, my wife's having a completely different experience. She's with my older two, and they're running around at the, um, up at the, up at that area, but it has a lot of metal. They shut it down the second there's thunder and won't open it up for like an hour and a half until um, there's no thunder because they don't, these things are lightning rods. And so um, they're up there, and they see the, th- they hear the thunder, and they get down there, so we're all closed, and my daughter is walking down the path, and it's a pretty good walk back to the cabin, and, and as we're walking, suddenly it thunders and lightnings, and she goes, Wah! and just falls down on the ground, like screaming, we're gonna die, we're gonna die. Suddenly my son Nate goes, we're gonna die. You know, he's just, he jumps right into the mess. My wife's going, move, go, move. Me and Jonathan, this is fun. Ah! It's like, that's the perfect picture of lightning. <laughs> lightning is not only like, ooh, it's, ah! If that's what lightning does to us, imagine what God's power does. There is a sense that when a miracle happens, everybody goes, oh, whoa. And at the same time you go, oh, which is it? It's both. It's the idea of awe. It's not like, awesome, dude. No, not that awesome. It's awesome, dude. It's overwhelming. It, 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 your mind can't process it. It takes you in and suddenly you realize the amount of power that's there and you start to get freaked out. And that's what he's seeing marching towards the very city he's in. This brightness that was coming. And then suddenly verse 5 it continues. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. There's a picture of what God did to Egypt as it brought the plagues and the pestilence in order for God to overcome Egypt. Nothing was going to stand his way. He was unrivaled. Israel was going to be set free. He stood and measured the earth. And when you measured stuff it was like taking sand and pouring it onto scales so you knew its weight and you knew its value. So he's valuing out all of the earth. He's judging it. He looked and shook the nations like he did in the book of Joshua. Then eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. He was where his, his were the everlasting ways. 
Imagine these hills back here that we see. They're occasionally we'll be sitting in the office and suddenly you hear this, and they just lit off dynamite. And you're like, whoa, that's a big one. We could hear it inside. And you walk outside and there's this little puff. Just, just this little puff going up off the hill. And they've been mining that mountain and mining that mountain and mining that mountain and it's still there. And it's, it's still there. God walks in front of it and just goes and falls over. Mountains aren't going to stand in his way. Nothing's going to be keeping him back. It, it all levels. He's the everlasting one. These mountains that seem to have been here forever, leveled. I saw the tents of Kushan and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. It's a picture of, his, of a wind blowing through, just rattling these tents of these Bedouins. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? A picture of him riding through the Red Sea or through the Jordan, which was split. Imagine what a chariot does. It runs rivets as it drives through. It's a picture of those things splitting open. And here he's saying, the river's not going to get in my way. A sea's not going to get in my way. I'm on my way. You stripped your sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. He's prepping for war. And you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging rivers swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. This wind and this hurricane is coming through. Flash floods are racing down the mountains. In the meantime, the very ocean, the sea, the Mediterranean Sea with its waves is being stopped and doing this backing away. It's a picture of God's intensity as he's coming. The sea can't stop him. The rivers can't stop him. He's unrivaled by the nations. None of them can stand and he keeps coming forward. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At, light, at the light, your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. There's a picture of Joshua Gideon, Agibia, as he's fighting. He asked for one, he asked for more time. And the sun stands still so they could have the victory of deliverance. Time isn't going to run out for God. He's the master of time. He's the ruler over it all. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out, and, and, and this is his whole picture, that he has come to, this, to judge and deal with the nations. And he's not going to be stopped by them. He's not going to be rivaled by them. In fact, all of these things are attached to Babylonian gods as well. There's Babylonian gods of mountains. There's Babylonian gods of the rivers. There's Babylonian gods of the rain. There's Babylonian gods of the sea. And basically God's going, these are mine. I control all these. I conquer all these. Nothing stops me. The Babylonians aren't going to stop me with their gods. Their day is coming. And he uses all these paintings from the Old Testament to weave this in into this song. And, and Israel singing this as they remember God, that he is going to deliver them, that he is coming to bring about their victory, and that God will deliver his people from destruction of those who oppress him. And that's exactly what he's getting into. You say, where do I get that? Verse 13, as we continue on. You went out. Why did God come out of, out of Mount Sinai? Why is he marching forth? You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. And I, I use the word deliverance. Because in his context, he's not talking about salvation in the way that many of us have been conditioned to think of being saved. Some kind of thing you do in Christianity. Oh, I got saved. No, this is deliverance. God is out against those who are oppressing his people and he's delivering them from their oppression. He's removing their shackles. In this case, he's going to deliver Israel from Babylon. He's going to lift them and set them free from what they're under. And that's the picture of what's going on here. You went out for the deliverance of your people, for the deliverance of your anointed 
This has apocalyptic language and tied into it. Apocalyptic means end times kind of language. It seems to be a picture of, of the people of God surrounded of, of the situation coming and God's coming out to deliver his people. And it goes on, you pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. So obviously there was this wicked one, sorry, verse, uh, at the end of verse 13, the head of the house of the wicked laying him bare from the thigh to neck. He crushes this guy. What's interesting about this wicked one is that it's, it's pulling out imagery of Babylonian mythology. In the Babylonian mythology, uh, there was a story of the creation worked between two gods, Tiamat and Rahab. And Tiamat and Rahab were locked in eternal battle. Now, I'm not quite sure what Tiamat looks like, but Rahab was the Leviathan, a a seven-headed serpent, dragon, that was in battle with Tiamat. And these two would go go at each other, and eventually Tiamat, I believe, wins against Rahab and slices Rahab in half, creating the sun, creating the heavens and the earth, and the blood is the, is the morning shine, and it's just all these creation concepts that they have blended into this disgusting gods of war kind of junk. And, he's, and God's using that, and he's saying, you know what I'm going to do to your leaders, Babylon? I'm going to do... What Demot did to Rahab. I'm going to conquer. I'm going to defeat. And ultimately, this is a picture of what God will do to the ultimate wicked one. Satan himself. The enemy of the Christian life. The enemy of our souls. That God's going to destroy him ultimately. Even, even the concept of this Antichrist rolls into this. this. This seems to be the head of the house of the wicked. This king who, who is over all these things. He's going to be pierced. The warriors who are going to kind of conquer the people are going to be destroyed, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And there he's saying, you calm the chaos. The seas were the surging concept of chaos and, and demonic presence. And God s- steps in with his peace and his order and tramples them, bringing them under his control. And so this is a picture of God ultimately saving and delivering his people out of chaos and destruction from the wicked group of people to bring them into peace and security and deliver them over. And so this deliverance is is a confident thing that we should be sure of. We speak of it even in the Christian church today, of the ultimate day of judgment, which God will indeed deliver us. But there's multiple forms of deliverance that we get to celebrate that Habakkuk couldn't. Habakkuk here is only celebrating the freedom he's receiving from the Babylonians. On the other hand, as Christians, we know that God will deliver us. We can be confident and get excited because, first of all, he delivered us from sin and punishment through the cross of Christ. You see, Jesus came to this earth as a victor, as the victorious, and he stepped in by receiving upon himself our sins and bore our sins on the cross, setting us free from the punishment that was coming against our sins. He released us. He set us free. And that should lead us to praise. That should lead us to celebrate. That should lead us to writing songs in the shape of the Macarena, right? That's, That's how this works. And so we want to realize that Hey, when we think about deliverance, indeed, he, did, he delivered us from the punishment through, through death, or through his death. Now, next, he's delivered us from death through the resurrection. And in this case, it's important that we note this. Because it doesn't look like deliverance, does it, when ISIS kills children? When Boko Haram steals women? When, when in China limits the ability to spread the gospel because they persecute the church and limit the amount of children you can have? When, when you have the North Korea doing everything they can to keep the Christian gospel from getting in? And what we see is that 
These people who are dying don't seem to be delivered. And yet what Christ did is in the cross, he overcame the one thing that can destroy all of us. You see, these two deliverances, we take so lightly in some ways as the church. I think the world takes it lightly because we take it lightly. The world takes it lightly because we, we, we think sin is just this thing. No, that's, not, that's sinful. Oh, it's so sinful. <laughs> we sell chocolate with that term, right? It's sin is not something that is easily dealt with. Struggle and stop yourself. If you struggle with cussing, stop for a day or a week. Try it. You're struggling with, with, with lying? Just, just wake up in the morning and tell yourself you're not going to. You'll inadvertently find yourself doing it without even trying. You see, sin is wedded to our hearts in such a manner that when it says, let's go, you go. Because honestly, we invent sin. We create it from our desires. We create it from within us. Our heart says, I want that. Ooh, that would be good. Oh, and we go, yeah, it would be good. We don't think it's bad. We don't think it's wrong. That's why when somebody's told they're a sinner, they're like, no, I'm not. None of us think we do anything wrong. We're that enslaved to it. We're that on its side. And Jesus saves us from it. He delivers us from that oppression, which destroys us. The second thing is none of us think about death. Not enough. We, we honestly, we ignore it. And yet you're not promised the end of this service. You're a dirty bomb away, a block away from being wiped off the face of the planet. You're a car accident on the way home away from your children or your spouse not having somebody. It is clear. Life is short. Death is inevitable. Save if Christ returns. Death will come for us all. It is a master that drives us crazy. That's why we buy the Botox and we go to put the creams on and we take all the different vitamins. We exercise like crazy. We try to keep our youth because we know around the corner is death. And so we think getting old means loss. You're one step closer to the end. You're one step closer to nothing else. And the danger and the difficulty is that it's a taskmaster that drives our lives and industries. Yet Jesus set us free from it. Though these children die, they will rise again. Though you and I will die, we will rise again. Some of us will rise again to eternal life in which we will walk in the presence of God and enjoy the wonders and the beauties of paradise. Others of us will awake to our sin and its punishment. If we don't have a deliverer, there is no way away from the punishment whether we will survive death or not. And then you end up in the second death, which is far worse than the first. And God doesn't want us there. And so we pray mercy, but he will be victorious. He will bring this in. There should be celebration. I think the trouble is right there at this turn, we suddenly land in this third day that he will deliver us from our enemies on judgment day. And there, let's be honest, we've been conditioned as American Christians to not think this is something to celebrate. Go ask a guy who's being persecuted if they celebrate when the oppressor is removed, arrested, or they're set free and it took a war. They're typically so celebrating the fact that they're free. Not the American church, because we don't like winners or losers when somebody gets hurt. Hey, put it in a football game, a baseball game, something. We love winners or losers there. Nobody got hurt. Well, technically they're getting hurt, but we don't really, we ignore the, just ignore concussions and stuff. But anyway, the reality is that we, we, we don't mind games. But when it comes to war, 
comes destruction, we're kind of like, well, nobody has to get hurt. We don't want people to get hurt. And we're not going to celebrate if, if, if somebody's victorious, even if it's our own country. There's a lot of us that feel that. And so when it comes to us saying that God is going to be victorious over our oppressors and our enemies, God will be the one who rises up making it right and making it just and defeating everyone that stands against his church, we go, Greg, you can't say that. That sounds really bad. And that sounds real mean. God's not mean like that. No, God will win the victory. We can be assured of that. He's saying so multiple times throughout the whole thing. The question is, why aren't we wanting to celebrate? Because of the tension between deliverance and mercy. We want to go, God, we want to be delivered. But whoa, 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 not that much. And I think it's okay. But we need to know how to rightly respond. We need to know how to rightly respond to the fact that God will be just. God will deliver us from oppression. God will set us free and how already has. And so he moves into this final segment in this justice and this is, or this response. And it's here in verse 16 through 19. Our response to God's victory should be what? It should be this. Verse 16 begins it. I, heard, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Huh. Fear. Fear is the first response. And a lot of churches love to say, you don't fear God anymore. You're his child. And I want to say, hold on. I don't think this, that we're told very clearly the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes, even as church members, even as Christians, there is still a need to fear God. Hey, I was my dad's son. He was a principal. I feared my dad in certain cases. When he came out, Principal Harris, you're going like, you know, it's like I'd rather do it with my mom. I don't want to do it with dad. In the same way, God can show up and he can be horrible and he can be powerful in his discipline to us as the church. And he needs to be to guide and direct us to lead us under the paths of rightness. And there is a fear rightly associated. You know why you you should fear God? Because everyone fears that which they don't control. Think about it. You love the grizzly bear. Cute little grizzly bear. But you got a giant chasm between you and that bear and a big cage because you're at the zoo. Now, you're not going to stand there in the middle of the woods with your kids behind you looking like snacks and go to that cute little grizzly bear. Kids, come look at the grizzly bear. That grizzly bear is going to eat you alive. You're not going to get away from it. It's going to run through trees, swim across water. It's a killing machine on land. And the first thing you're going to think when you see that grizzly bear and there's nothing protecting you, there's no way to control it, you're going to go, ah! That's how you feel when you're swimming out in the ocean. You're thinking, shark, shark. There's a shark here. I swear, you know you think it. Everybody thinks it when they're in the ocean. There's a shark. Can I see a fin? I saw a fin. Oh, that's a scuba diver. Sharks. Because you can't control them. We fear whatever we really can't control. Even squirrels. <laughs> what do you tell your children? Don't pet that. It's got rabies. Because <laughs> you're scared of what you can't control. Maybe not a snail, but you can control a snail. You can't control God. I don't care if you're his son, his daughter. Jesus died on the cross for you. That doesn't give us uh, the control booth to God. He is unstoppable, unprecedented, powerful, and awesome God. And that deserves a little bit of fear. 
And he starts and he says, I'm scared. It's no wonder that the book of Hebrews warns us to be afraid of God, even as Christians. In fact, what they say is anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? He's profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. How many of us in this room are upset with something in the church or another Christian or something a pastor said or a friend said and now you're like, ah, forget this Christianity. Don't do it. You'll move churches, do something else, go find some other Christian friends, but bottom line is don't throw out Christ. Don't trample under the foot what God has given you as a gift. Don't you dare, any of us who are in this room this morning hearing about how Jesus has died for your sins, that God has given you this as a gift, sit there and go, whatever. How would you feel if you paid a precious price to give somebody a gift that could save their life and they took it and threw it in the trash? This is how we should respond to God. And he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is not a joke. He's not somebody they trifled with. He created the, the universe. The mountains fall apart in his presence. Yeah, he's awesome, but he's, whoa, awesome. Fear is the right beginning of a response when we come to talking about God's victory because it's God's victory, not ours necessarily. We just stand behind him going, you get him, God, go. Whoa, 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 don't turn on me, but that's what can happen. And so we need to have hopeful expectation. He goes on, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. So here, Habakkuk simply says, God, I trust you. I'm going to wait quietly. Though I'm scared, I will wait for the day in which you will finally end Babylon. We will wait for the day in which God will finally return and remove our oppression, remove death finally and completely. And that's the promise given to us through Jesus Christ. That we're given the promise that those who are oppressed, the ISIS and Boko Haram and Russia and China and on all of these groups in North Korea that are killing our brothers and sisters, suppressing the gospel, God will remove and ultimately judge. And I think it's okay to say, praise God. I think it's okay to say, yes, God, get them. But have mercy. Have mercy. And so we should have hopeful expectation because he's going to come. Jesus explained it. He wrote it out in Matthew chapter 24. It's found in the book of Revelation. It's all over the place that Jesus tells us this is how hopeful and expectant we should be, that we should watch. Therefore, keep watch for you don't know the day or the hour. It's going to happen. So we should be ready at any moment that Jesus could return. At any time he could come back. At any moment he could bring the day of judgment. And so that should check the way that we live. And it should check the way the nations act. It doesn't, but it should us. And so we should live in trust, even though we may be in trouble. Sometimes the church gets in trouble. Sometimes we get disciplined. And in this case, Habakkuk's not being, isn't ignoring the fact that Babylon's coming to judge them. In fact, he knows that. He knows their punishment's coming first, and then will come the punishment of the world. That's the pattern that exists in God's justice. In fact, here it says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to have joy 
in the God of my salvation, the God of my, my Savior. I'm going to rejoice. He's got me. Even though this may look like a mess, he's saying, even though I don't have anything to offer you in sacrifice, I don't have anything to eat. I have nothing to take to the temple. There's nothing there. I'll rejoice in you. Because the discipline starts with the church and then goes out. As it says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Don't get quiet because you're suffering. For it's time for the judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it starts in the church, what's it going to be like outside? And that's what drives us then to evangelism. That's what drives us to get out there and tell people about Jesus. What drives us to knock on our neighbor's door and look a little foolish at times, to look a little psycho at times, to look a little fanatical at times, because we do not want to be ashamed, though we may, cut, we may go through some suffering, because it starts in the house. Persecution and things begins here as a sign to the world. If God is this way and cares about these people, how bad is it going to be if, if you've rejected him? And then part of us, we need to celebrate and part of us needs to cry for mercy. And so suddenly we begin to go, but God, if you're going to start here, it's right because we know we need it. We know we deserve it. In hell, there will only be people who think they deserve heaven. And in heaven, there will be only one person who's ever experienced hell and didn't deserve it. And everyone else there will know they didn't deserve heaven and are there as a gift. And that's the beauty of this. We know it started with us here, but it will not be ended in heaven that way. We are free, delivered from that judgment. And that leads to the final, the next piece, praise. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Have we noticed yet something? I've kind of hinted that this is the, the Shiganoth, guys. This is written in a Shiganoth. Why is it every time God wants to call us to praising him and worshiping him, he didn't simply just write, and you should worship me every time I deliver people because it's right, period. You know, systematic theology says the response to God's deliverance is worship, period. Why isn't that just what we're looking at? Because he wants to stir your soul. God starts when he calls us to praise by using music. You ever notice that? He doesn't give you a sentence to tease your mind. He gives you music to stir your soul. He gives you poetry to call forth that which is inside, to yell at your heart, wake up, O dead thing. Wake up, O hardened thing. Jesus has saved you from your sin. You have no punishment. You will be resurrected. You will walk in eternity before God, and everyone who's ever tried to stop that or oppress that or destroy that will find their day before God. Either they will be our brothers and sisters, or they will be rightly dealt with. And what he's saying is, come, do you hear? God is the victor. He's your victor. He saved you. He set you free. Heart cry out, rejoice, and sing. When we get together then, it's not, okay, oh, tis the mighty victory of God. Stone cold heart. We don't walk in here and say, welcome, stone cold Christians. That's not what's going on. It's come in here with your heart glad and enlightened and sing for it. Break your heart open and allow it to praise him because he's given us the music to do so. It needs to be praised. It's the right response. 
The right response to being delivered is not to feel guilty. God, somebody else got hurt, so I go, he saved you. He paid his precious son on the cross to set you free. Praise him. Do not be afraid to praise him. Do not have some kind of salvation guilt. God hasn't done that. Instead, go share it. It's free for everybody else too. You'll feel guilty if you're not preaching. You'll feel guilty if you're not sharing. But if you're freely sharing this message, you'll freely praise him because you've been delivered. He wants to deliver everybody we can tell if they'll simply receive it. No matter where we go, this should then be a place where we gather, sing praise, shout to the name of God because it's in unison together of his great name who's clearly set us free, who's delivered us, and we should shout out together in that praise and leave encouraged. Should walk out of here in this manner. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. So that when you walk out these doors and you get sacked by the entirety of your life again, when the, the, that money that's come short suddenly appears again, when suddenly you walk into that office and that boss is there with his glaring eyes again, when you walk and see your dad and you got to go tell him you did something wrong again, when no matter what situation you're in, you walk in, your feet will not falter, your faith will not vanish. When God brings the discipline, you will learn and grow when he brings you good times, you will sing and praise. You will be strengthened. You will be encouraged. That's what we want for you as you leave church. That's what we need to be when we walk out of here every Sunday as a people encouraged that our God is for us. Then who can be against us? And therefore, we open our mouth in our praise. We open our mouths in the declaration of his gospel, which is for everyone. Let's give it away. Let's give it away. And let's praise him. Amen, church? All right, let's bow our heads. This morning, you may be in a position where you are looking at this and you're hearing Christians talking about deliverance and and mercy. And I just want you to focus in for a second. Have you been set free from your sin? Do you know that you have an answer for your sin? Because you can't erase it with good works. It's impossible. It's in your past. You can't go back there and fix the things you've done. Do you know that after death, you're going to be fine? That there isn't awaiting you the judgment of God? God loves you. He has not come because he wants you to hear this message that he's given his son, Jesus Christ, for you. That Jesus died on the cross to break the chain of sin, to give us a new beginning. He rose from the dead so that we would know we can be alive beyond death and walk with God because we've been made right with him. And yes, even those that would oppress, God's justice will come perfectly one day. And I want you to have that. He wants you to have that. It's given as a free gift. You don't do anything for it. There's no amount of good works you can pile up to earn it. And there's no amount of evil that he can't overcome. It's the perfect gift to make you right with God. And if you need that this morning and you don't have an answer to those two questions, receive Christ. Trust that he is willing to take that suffering for you, that punishment for you. If that's where you're at right now and you need to receive that and you're ready to do so, then just put your hand up. I want to give you this chance right now to make that decision. You're saying, you're talking to God. You're going, that's me, God. I need that forgiveness. I need that freedom. 
and that's where you're at right now and you're in that place, then start with a confession, just with talking to God, just telling him that you know you're a sinner. And then in the next move, you just turn away from that life of sin. It's called repentance. Turn to God in your mind and, and tell God that you're ready to follow him. Ask him to put your sins on Christ. Let him know that you trust that Jesus makes you right with him. Ask him to make you alive anew and then to lead you through the rest of your life as your leader. And then just thank him. Thank him for all of those things. And God, you are a great deliverer. You've set us free of so many things from our sins, from all these pieces. We ask that you would indeed continue to lead us forth in praise and knowing you and celebrating you. Help us, help us, we pray, to continue to praise you rightly because of all that you've given us. And God, we ask that you'd free our persecuted brothers and sisters and that you'd have mercy. Help us to live by faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.